We've been using fire as an image starting two weeks ago in this series that I am calling Phoenix Arise. And we talked a little bit last week about rekindling a fire. But you can only stoke the same fire for so long. Eventually it burns out, or we must extinguish the flame lest we move on and create possibly a fire as we leave that fire pit behind. You remember the old commercial, I remember it when I was a kid, Smokey the Bear and the state trooper hat that always said, only you can prevent forest fires. Well, I think when we understand the nature of a spiritual fire, sometimes what happens is we pull out the Smokey Bear in us and we want to extinguish a fire rather than letting it go ahead and burn out so we can start a new one. So here in recent years, we have seen the damage that forest fires can do all across our country. We've seen it most recently in Colorado. But that too will burn out at some point. And what is kind of left behind is an extinguished fire. And I want to talk to you this morning in the third installment of this series about being extinguished just for the night. Extinguished for the night. Now, when a fire is extinguished, what, left, what is left behind is some darkness. And when we think about this metaphor, when faith that has been handed to us or been forced upon us begins to die out, we're kind of afraid of the darkness that it leaves behind rather than an anticipation of a new fire that can be built in the future. So this process of letting a fire die out and starting a new one is a process that has been most recently called deconstruction. But you don't leave it as deconstruction. There's some reconstruction that goes on as well. So I'm in a golf league on Monday night during the summers, and uh, right by Lost Nation Golf Course uh, this past year, there were four homes that caught on fire, and you could see it right on the first uh, fairway there. And um, it's kind of interesting how long it stood there as a skeleton of the remains of the house. Eventually, they have to come in, tear that down, and I imagine this spring they'll get back to reconstructing those homes. In the meantime, though, the people that lived in those homes, as a fire started and it spread to not just the house next door, but it potentially threatened that whole development because it was a very windy night that night that that fire occurred. And they were afraid that it would take out the whole street. Luckily, multiple fire uh, departments came out and they were able to extinguish that fire and prevent it from taking out the whole street. But it did ruin four homes. And if we were to say, well, we're just going to leave it that way, then that would be irresponsible, wouldn't it? To kind of leave that self-standing skeletal remain of these houses on that street. No, it needs to be reconstructed. So when you hear about people going kind of through deconstruction of their faith, reevaluating it, you also have to understand on the other side of it is a reconstruction of a better faith after they thought through some of the dynamics. So 
I want to give to you a quote. Uh, this is from John Caputo. He wrote a book called, What Would Jesus Deconstruct? Interesting title. And he says this, I quote, Nobody has to come along and deconstruct things. Things are auto-deconstructed by the tendencies of their own inner truth. In other words, when we come to a realization that certain things just don't work anymore, you automatically go through deconstruction. But deconstruction is not an attack from the outside. It's sort of a push outward from within, which means that as you let go of certain things, as you allow those things to extinguish, there's also the expectation that you're going to rebuild a fire. So people that have come to this point where they have entered a phase in their life, and I don't want to call it a phase because it's not like a phase, but it's a season, maybe that's a better term, of their life where they are going through deconstruction, they become very fearful because they're afraid and they don't know what comes next. And so a lot of times they will hold on to a faith that they know is no longer working. They just hold on to it out of fear because they don't know what to expect next. But I'm here to say that what comes next is a new dawn, a new opportunity. It can make us very uncomfortable at times. It is a place of darkness, and it can be a place of doubt. However, there is a sense that we all go through this at some point in our, in our life. Maybe once, maybe several times. But there can even be a sense of feeling abandoned by God for a while. Jesus felt this on the cross when he quoted Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God never forsook him, but he felt that way as he was going through some of the things he was going through. So this 16th century Spanish monk that is called St. John of the Cross, he talks about the dark night of the soul, and he talks about how God plays kind of a mischievous game of hide-and-seek with us at times, but it's to draw us out of our cozy spirituality and be able to find a new road of discovery. And what he tells us is Christ will be found by those who seek him, not only by those who presume upon him. So darkness and light are a dominant theme that we find in the scriptures. It starts very early in Genesis chapter 1 verse 5 it says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. What's interesting is in a Jewish outlook, day does not begin with sunrise, a new day begins at sunset. Did you know that? So a new day does not begin when it gets light. A new day begins when it gets dark and it emerges into light. Now that's kind of counterintuitive to us, isn't it? Because we always think of, oh, the alarm went off, it's a new day ahead of me. Oh, it's dark, it's starting to get light, and there's a new day. But if you were to think, especially during winter, it's getting dark at 6 o'clock at night, and you're going, this is a new day that is going to start, but I've got to go through the darkness first before the new dawn arises. 
And it's interesting that that's the way it's represented in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Darkness, it seems, is the canvas for a new experience and a new light. And so when we think about this, spiritual progress, when we think about our life and our faith, spiritual progress is not about knowing, 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 and more knowing. That's a lot of times the way we think about it. It's just the accumulation or addition of knowledge. But it involves knowing, unknowing, and new knowing. In other words, when in the life of faith we journey from one season to the next. We know certain things, and then there's other things that we don't know, but it's as we go through the unknowing that we have a new knowing. And so a phoenix faith begins with a disturbing thought like, I'm not so sure anymore. I'm not so confident as I used to be. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where it's headed. So these are all common thoughts. But unknowing can have two meanings, not knowing or unknowing. So there's certain things that we don't know, but there are certain things that we need to let go, unknowing, because we had a misperception of the way certain things worked. So the dark night of unknowing does not mean that you're wrong. It just means that's where you have started from. So especially people who have grown up in church, they've been given a faith that has been handed to them by their fathers and grandfathers and mothers, and that's all they know. But life hits us in the face and we go, ah, that just doesn't seem to work anymore. Maybe I need to unknow some, th some things so I can relearn or learn some new things. And that's what the dark night of the soul is all about by St. John of the Cross. So I have this video here, and it, it just kind of quotes some of his thoughts. And the narrator puts a very kind of holy tone to it, but I think you can take away some things from this when you combine the graphic with the narrative. Let's watch. On a dark night, kindled in love with yearnings, O oh happy chance, I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder, disguised, O oh happy chance, in darkness and in concealment, my house being now at rest. In the happy night, in secret, when none saw me, nor I beheld aught, without light or guide, save that which burned in my heart. This light guided me more surely than the light of noonday, to the place where he, well I knew who, was awaiting me, a place where none appeared. O night that guided me, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that joined beloved with lover, lover transformed in the beloved. 
Upon my flowery breast, kept holy for himself alone, there he stayed sleeping, and I caressed him, and the fanning of the cedars made a breeze. The breeze blew from the turret as I parted his locks. With his gentle hand, he wounded my neck and caused all my senses to be suspended. I remained lost in oblivion. My face I reclined on the beloved. All ceased, and I abandoned myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. What caused that dark night of the soul in St. John? I have no idea. But what I do know is that he understood that a deeper life, a deeper enlightenment, a wider experience came about because he didn't run from his doubts or his despair, but he walked through them, and as he walked through them, a new light emerged on the other side. And sometimes there are certain things in our life that go out. They're extinguished. But the hope is it's not forever. It's only for the night. And then a new dawn emerges. In other words, the gift of darkness draws you to know God's presence beyond what you know what you can imagine. And it's hard to explain. I think at times people have gone through something that David says when he wrote the 23rd Psalm, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And I don't know if you've ever gone through something where you didn't understand, you didn't know how it was going to be fixed, you didn't know what the purpose was that you were going through, what you were going through, but you just sensed deep down inside that God did not leave you, even if it felt like it, that there was still an ember that was still burning inside, and that's what kept you going. And all of a sudden, a new day dawns, and you begin to see things in a brighter light. I am very skeptical of people who talk about accepting Jesus and then everything is all sunshine the rest of their life. That's not the way life works. There was a dear man, he was like a brother to me, whose favorite song was Victory in Jesus. And he would sing this song Every time we had a kind of a request night at church, and, and I love the song, don't get me wrong, but it shows only kind of a, one angle of life. Yes, there's victory in Jesus, but that victory is not experienced day to day, every day, all day. Are you following what I'm saying? And so sometimes the other songs that we need to understand that kind of resonate with us or express what we cannot express are things like 
Spiritual struggles are normal. They are not sought out, but they're normal. They're not to be romanticized. They're normal. They're not to be shown off or bragged about. They're just normal. And to speak otherwise is to ignore the counter-testimony that we find in the Scripture. I have three quotes for you, each from different individuals, and then we're going to talk about Nicodemus for a few moments. This is from an individual, goes by the nickname Science Mike, Mike McCarr, Mike uh, Harg, and he... um, he does a podcast, and uh, at one time it was entitled Science Mike, and he says this. Sociologists tell us that, and it varies a percentage or two year by year, but 43 to 44% of people will go through a major faith transition at some point in their life. And that's any faith transition. So that can be from one Christian denomination to another denomination, that can be from belief to atheism, that can also be, and this happens, from secularism to some form of religiosity. He says, but think about that, 44% is a pretty big number. Second quote, this comes from Barbara Brown Taylor. The problem is, she says, many of the people in need of saving are in churches, And at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. Third quote. People are very afraid of what looks like deconstruction. You go back to the first 1,300 years of Christianity, and faith is defined as a combination of knowing and not knowing, of a willingness and a readiness by the grace of God to live with, certain, with a certain degree of unknowing or what the mystics call darkness. That's Richard Rohr. So there was a man. His name was Nicodemus. And I read for you part of John chapter 3. Nicodemus was an important man. He had held a very high position. He was a very influential religious leader. Presumably, his first encounter with Jesus was when, in John chapter 2, he saw Jesus go into the temple area. And Jews would come to the temple and they would offer up a sacrifice. But when they would come with a goat or a sheep or a turtle dove or whatever they were going to offer as a sacrifice of worship... There was a group of people there in the temple, they were called the money changers, that would often say, your your animal, your offering has a blemish in it. But we happen to have a sheep here who is unblemished. And at an exorbitant price, you can buy this animal and offer up an unblemished animal. So Jesus enters this temple one day, And he begins to drive out all these business people that are taking advantage, most of the time, of the poor that had come. And um, he said something very profound. He said, you're making my house a den of thieves. So the temple was becoming this corrupt business. And then he said this in John chapter 2, he says, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, I just have to do something about this. So Nicodemus probably observed 
Jesus going into the temple and putting on this theatric act to show that they had corrupted what God intended the temple to be. Well, as he witnessed this, this despicable form of religious and financial abuse that was taking place in the temple, um, he probably already knew that that was wrong. I think when we understand what he asked Jesus is, is kind of revealing his heart. So he kind of knew that there was a sordid form of abuse and what we find is the cruelty usually weighed upon the poor. And uh, he felt, I'm sure, that the religious leaders at the time were manipulating uh, people for their own advantage. So in John chapter 3, we're told that Jesus and Nicodemus meet at night. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night. Think about that for a moment. He didn't have the guts to meet him during the day because he wanted to stay hidden in the shadow. He was protecting his own position. To admit that what Jesus did in the temple was correct would have cost him maybe his position, his influence, his power, maybe his livelihood. But there was this internal conflict that was eating away at him. You might say that Nicodemus was going through deconstruction. This was the faith he knew, but he was troubled by it. And he observes Jesus and he sees that Jesus has a heart for the people that are being taken advantage of. And this internal conflict begins to eat at him. And so to hedge his bet, he decides to have this covert meeting with Jesus. He comes to him at night. And in this meeting, he expresses some strong sentiments about Jesus. Verse 2, it says, He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs, the miracle, uh, except uh, to do it... Uh, let me rewind. No one can do these signs... Uh, that you could do apart from the presence of God. And then Jesus really hits him between the eyes. Verily, verily, the old King James says, or very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now can you imagine how this hit Nicodemus? Nicodemus was overwhelmed. Jesus understood uh, that his words were confronting the way Nicodemus looked at his faith. And you know what Jesus was calling on Nicodemus to do? Deconstruct his faith. To go through the dark night of the soul so that he could come out the other side to a new dawn. So you know John chapter 3, it goes on and... Of course, Nicodemus says, well, how can anyone enter his mother's womb a second time to be born a second time? And that's not what Jesus was talking about. I think what he was talking about is what musicians call he had to take it from the top. He had to start all over again. He had to rethink everything. And so 
Jesus gives Nicodemus this assurance. When you jump all the way down to verse 16 of John chapter 3, here's the reassurance. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him may not perish but have everlasting life. The RSV puts it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. We quote that verse. It's probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. I mean, you see it every football game. There's a guy at the ends, in the end zone with John 3.16 on his t-shirt, right? Do you realize something? That verse was given to one man. Nicodemus. He was the initial audience of that promise when Nicodemus was going through deconstruction, going through the dark night of the soul to come out the other side. Now it applies to all of us, don't get me wrong. John 3.16 applies to you and me. But it was given to one guy. It wasn't given on the Sermon on the Mount to the masses. It was given to one guy. And it was to help Nicodemus understand that there is a new dawn. Don't be afraid, Nicodemus. Be born from above. Rethink everything. Take it from the top. Well, Nicodemus quietly slips away from Jesus into the dark. He makes his way through the side alleys and shadows back to his safe, prosperous life. But he couldn't get Jesus out of his head because deconstruction and reconstruction takes time. So Nicodemus shows up a second time in the Gospel of John. It's found in John chapter 7. Now, there's a growing animosity toward the teachings of Jesus. And in verse 45 of John 7, it says, Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why did you not arrest him? So they want to arrest Jesus. They want to already put him on trial and condemn him for the type of teachings that he's giving. And the police answered and said, never has anyone spoken like this. We can't arrest this guy. There's no one that has ever spoken like him. So the Pharisees replied, surely you have not been deceived too, have you? Has any one of you the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? The implied answer to that question is no. We religious people don't believe in him. Has any one of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which does not know the law, they're accursed. They don't have it put all together. They have not constructed this perfect religious system like we have. And then it says this, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, that is the Pharisees, asked, our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they are doing, does it? And the other Pharisees replied, surely you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. You know what the other Pharisees do to Nicodemus? They slap him in the face. They basically say, well, how can you think this way? How can you even be open to Jesus? Right? No, no. Well, 
this dark night of the soul of Nicodemus that he's traveling down, now finds himself in the crosshairs of those who were his community, those who had accepted him, those who honored him as a Pharisee. And he's almost on the outskirts now. He's also going to be kind of uh, pushed to the side of irrelevance. But there's this new dawn that's coming from within. And the last place we meet Nicodemus is in John chapter 19. So three times in John. John 3, John 7, John 19. And what we're told in John chapter 19 is Jesus has been crucified. His side has been pierced. He's been taken down from the cross. Now where are they going to put Jesus now that the Roman Empire has killed him? Verse 38 says this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Now listen, listen. Oh, I love this. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with spices and linen cloths according to the uh, uh, burial customs of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified. And in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one has ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. You know what Nicodemus did? He finally emerges out of the darkness and he helps take down the body of Jesus. He brings the spices, the form of embalming back then, to put in the burial wrap of Jesus. He's all in because he has new hope. A new day has dawned. His faith now has not been within a religious system, but in a person who, as he observed on the cross, looked down upon the masses and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They're wandering in confusion. Here's this man, Nicodemus, who met Jesus at night and walked away and did not follow him but observed his life and then later defends him before his own, his own colleagues. And then when you look at the end of his life, the end of Jesus' life, he takes him down and he puts the spices in the wraps and places him in the tomb. For all Nicodemus knows, that's the end of it all, right? Jesus is going to decay in this tomb. Uh, but that's next week's message. Uh, there's an ember that still glows. There's an ember that still glows. Because we know the end of the story. Jesus will be resurrected. So what am I trying to tell you today? There can no, be no rebirth of hope without some dark nights of the soul some deconstruction and some reconstruction. And sometimes we got to start all over again. We got to rethink everything. Incidentally, that's what repentance means. To rethink again certain things. 
It's not sorrow and shame as often is accompanied with religious definition of it. It's the idea of rethinking things. Maybe I'm caught in a way of thinking that maybe I should unknow so I can know again. Jesus called Nicodemus to do something far more demanding than what he called his own disciples to do. When he looks at his disciples, he says, drop those fishing nets and come follow me. It's more difficult than what he told the rich young ruler who came and said, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love God and love people. And he tells that rich young ruler, hey, walk away from your life as you know it and come follow me. He wouldn't do it. But Nicodemus did. With all his degrees in theology, his tenure at the university, his numerous academic publications and scholarly acclaim, he let go of it because there was a new dawn that was coming. You know, Nicodemus is a perfect example of an individual that went through deconstruction, not so that it would be extinguished forever, but just for the night just for that short period before the dawn reemerges. So today, when we think about our own life, don't be afraid to rethink certain things. There will be other religious people that will want to force you to stop. But rethink everything in light of Jesus. So would you stand with me as we close... And at the end of this liturgy, I have a quote from St. John of the Cross that I've been kind of using as an example today. And I also have a quote from Luke 178. So how much are you willing to rethink to become a different person? Don't be cavalier about it and don't be too quick to answer. Just remember that God often takes us down the dark alley, the dark night of the soul, before you turn the corner and you see the lights of a new tomorrow. St. John says, The gift of darkness draws you to know God's presence beyond thought, imagination, or sensory feeling. During the dark night, the tried and true rituals and creeds of religion no longer satisfy or bring assurances of God's love. But he doesn't leave us there. He is reminded, as we are, by the tender mercy of God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to to guide our feet in the way of peace. Thanks for coming out today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, help us to understand these words today and help us to look at the life of Nicodemus. Help us to understand that he had the courage to keep the process going rather than shutting it down. It's my prayer that we'll all have that same courage to allow ourselves to rethink certain things in light of the wonder and the beauty of the uh, Jesus that we uh, love and the Savior we admire. We pray that you will be with those who couldn't be with us today, 
and for our online friends as well. Help us all to take the next step, remembering that anything that has been extinguished is only for the night. Help us to see that a new dawn is arising. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.